You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. these books i thought i'd take some light reading in case i got bored hello and welcome to tfm's books and comic show for star trek and i am just one of your hosts here matthew rushing and here with me as he is every single time these days the wonderful the illustrious chris jones well uh thank you matthew for that it's been a too long a sacrifice here on the network talking about books and comics over the years but we're still going strong it's very true it's very true i i see you're making too long a sacrifice by wearing your alabama sweatshirt you know since you know they won the national championship or something this year whatever yeah you know it's just something we do from time to time yeah yeah <laughs> Pretty frequently these days. But anyway, you're not here to talk about sports ball. Uh, you're here to listen to us talk about Star Trek books and comics, and we're so excited to do that this week as um, we gave it away. We're going to be talking about the full comic run, uh, Too Long a Sacrifice, the Deep Space Nine comic that had just come out uh, and finished up there at the end of 2020. And so we're finally going to talk about the whole thing together But uh, before we get there, um, just a quick reminder, you know, you can find the show wherever you get your podcasts. And so please do find us and subscribe to us wherever that is. If you're on Apple Podcasts, we'd love a star rating review. That definitely continues to help the show grow. Uh, And then, of course, you can find us on Twitter at TrekFM or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. There's the Babel Conference that you can join just by typing Babel into the search field on Facebook. There's some questions. We can let you in. You can talk to listeners from all over the world. Uh, We've got the uh, website, Trek.FM, where you can also go to the contact section and you can send us an email if you'd like. And, of course, we're also even on Instagram at TrekFM. So all of those places that you can find us, and we hope that you will. And one more thing, Matthew, Uh, starting up, I'm doing one tomorrow at noon, and we're going to be scheduling one every other week, so two a month now. We've got the patrons at Roundtables going again, where you can hop on with me and other listeners and talk about Star Trek. We'll pick random topics, so I hope people will choose to join in that as well. Yeah, which is great. I mean, so you'll just want to make sure to join into that. You'd have to support us through Patreon at patreon.com slash trekfm. And Chris and I will talk a little bit more about that later, but it's definitely a good plug for why you'd want to join supporting the network. So, uh, Chris, we only have a couple of news items uh, because there's not a ton going on right now. In fact, actually, uh, upcoming comics is really what we have to talk about because we don't have any upcoming books until uh, a couple months down the road here. 
Uh, and so luckily, though, in February, we're going to be getting year five, number 20, as well as the roundup and the wrap up for Seven's Reckoning with issue four. So I'm very interested. Obviously, both of these comics, I think, have led us into some interesting areas, especially year five with everything that's going on with Gary Seven and ISIS. Uh, the cat that is not, you know, the terrorist organization, completely different. Um, and so I'm really excited to see where that goes. And then, of course, you know, I'm hoping that Seven's Reckoning can kind of bring that story full circle and 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 wrap up maybe in a surprising and maybe better way than I feel like it's, it's going at this exact moment. Yeah, that's right. We I think we're both looking forward to the Gary Seven situation and to find out exactly why Isis is doing what we saw her do in the last comic. And then Seven's Reckoning, I, I think that's going to be the payoff because, you know, one one reason I'm glad that today we're talking about Too Long a Sacrifice after we have the entire story is that we can really discuss how it all fits together, what the message is behind it and what we think about the overall story. Whereas Seven's Reckoning, we've been doing that bit by bit. And each time I feel a little bit like I'm not Sure, how much I have to say about this installment, but once it's all done, I think it might turn out to be a pretty good story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even just referencing what we're going to talk about this week, I I think that I probably would have felt a little bit like that in issue three of this, too, you know, Um, Mm, because there's a lot of there's some good exposition uh, in it. There's some interesting things, but really it's. It's the thing that's like giving you just enough to where you just are then ready for the end. So absolutely, I I agree with you there. So it's exciting that we'll be getting both of those in February. Uh, Also, uh, we are excited because, you know, we want to make sure that we continue to bring you uh, great episodes here and... uh, it obviously for for Chris and I uh, to to get together with our time differences and everything can be difficult, uh, and so we wanted to continue to bring you the continuation of the twenty first century novels that uh, Dan and Bruce had, had started, uh, and they kind of left off, uh, and we're going to be welcoming Bruce back here over the next few months uh, for a while and and maybe beyond we'll see how everything goes but we are going to be continuing the 24th century novels with him uh, together and so he'll be joining me for that which will be a lot of fun which means you're going to get more episodes of literary treks which is the most important thing Uh, but we'll be uh, picking up with titan synthesis which i'm very excited to do obviously since we had just talked to james uh, about his latest picard novel Um, so I think this is going to be a lot of fun, and honestly, for the listeners, it's the best of news. It's definitely the best of times because, well, you'll be getting more literary tracks. Yeah, it's going to be great to have Bruce back. So thank you, Bruce, for agreeing to do that. And I hope everyone enjoys that continuation of the 24th century. Yeah, me too. I, you know, uh, I would say for me, uh, it is mostly my... I, I, yeah, I would say it's it's probably my favorite era of, of Trek books, you know, and uh, there was so, so much great stuff there. Um, so, I, you know, absolutely excited to, to be able to continue that. So that's what we have, uh, you know, to look forward to here coming up on Literary Treks. It's going to be great. But Chris, I think it's time maybe uh, for us to dive into the feature and talk about that super long sacrifice. Yeah, let's do that. 
So, Chris, um, one of the things that, you know, uh, the way we're kind of going to structure this uh, episode is we're going to talk about, you know, each issue and what's going on in each issue and kind of build. Um, but before we even got there, I, you know, with comics, this is such a big deal, art. Uh, and so I thought we should have a discussion about the art because immediately when you open up this comic, it definitely has an artistic style, which I would say is minimalist uh it, it there's not uh, a lot that is happening stroke wise you know there's there's not a lot of markings on the page when it comes to the art mm-hmm. there's not a lot of definition it's very it i would say it's very impressionistic of of the characters um and so i wondered for you kind of i wanted to talk to you about that before i even got into the issues what did you end up thinking about the art here and too long a sacrifice yeah that immediately caught my eye as well and i honestly at first i didn't like it very much because i prefer to have a lot more detail i prefer for the characters to look more like they do on the screen and in here often that's not the case in here often they don't look much like the characters at all at other times, they do look like the characters, but in a very simplified way. And then there are times where you get a, quite a bit of detail if you've got a really close-up shot. It's rather inconsistent. But what I got to thinking about, and I wanted to ask you what you think about this, is I, I do feel, of course, on the artist's part, this is very much an intentional decision. It's not that the artist can't draw the characters in great detail. They've chosen to draw them this way for the purpose of this story. Knowing that it's sort of like, um, you know, it's like a noir, it's a detective story, it's a murder mystery. We're kind of seeing, we're, we're being delivered the story sort of through Odo's eyes. It's kind of like a recounting is the way I look at it of these events that happen. I mean, do you feel that perhaps this style is being used to focus your attention more on the story itself and less on the visuals and then leading you through and does it does it help the the murder mystery aspect of the story come to the surface hmm that is a good question and i i wondered you know why they had chosen this style as i was you know beginning the comic and you know i i think you you just rightly pinpointed that you know there are so moments where it it does work you know like the characters look right or they capture a moment really well um i i i wondered if the point of using this artistic style was the the kind of malaise that we're in 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 the comic you know i mean we we have um you know it's war there's all of these murders happening on the station um mm, it, there's yeah. a bombing on the station you know and so that you know in in some ways the the art feeling and and not a, not derogatorily i don't mean it to sound like this but when i say the word muddied you know like everything just mm-hmm. isn't clear and I kind of wondered mm-hmm. if that was the reason for the artistic choice of, of to do the art that way. And it could be. Um, and I would say, as as with you, this is not my favorite art style. 
Um, I, I don't mind no, going minimalistic with the art, but I do appreciate if the minimalism can still make the characters look more like themselves on the, as they do on screen. And again, there are moments where they really do, and then there are other moments where it just feels almost like, um, uh, like I'm looking through a glass darkly, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm looking at, what is this? This is uh, page 15. There's a scene with Cisco and Kira and Jadzia and Odo in Cisco's ready room. And the only character that even remotely looks like themselves is Cisco. And Kira, I mean, it looks like maybe Kira's stunt doubles cousin <laughs> is in the scene. <laughs> it doesn't look like her at all. But on the same page, then if you drop down uh, to the bottom half of the page, there's a shot of her that does look pretty much like Kira. So... I I don't know. It's uh, it's an interesting approach to the art, and I'm I'm sure that there's a good thought process behind the choice. But for me, it's definitely not my favorite style. No. Yeah. Um. And I I mean, in the end, you know, whether or not the the art style is necessarily my favorite in a comic, I do think it really does come down to then, you know, if if that's not working for me completely, it's going to come down to the story. And I would say, you know, as we dive in to issue one, um, I was I was interested uh, to see, you know, where the comic would take place in the timeline. And we are kind of smack in the middle of the Dominion War. And so uh, I I appreciated that that was the story point because it's one of the most interesting parts of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And then I kind of wondered, ooh, I wonder how this is going to kind of work itself into the show. Um, you know, how, how will this actually work? Because, you know, that's... Uh, it could it it could be hard, especially since you got so serialized there to really make this fit. And I think they really do. Um, and mm-hmm. so I, that's where the for me, you know, the art uh, and the story did kind of somewhat combine. Where I was like, okay, we're in the middle of the war. This makes a little bit more sense that that things do feel like this. Uh, and so um, I, I I liked that we're we're in that point. And you know, we we start off the comic by having. Garrick and uh, Bashir meeting up for lunch at a restaurant there uh, on the promenade. And, well, things do legitimately start off with a bang because there's an explosion in this restaurant killing eight people and almost killing Garrick and Bashir. Yeah, and that that actually, I didn't know where the story was going at first. And when... Garrick invites when they go to lunch together. I thought that yeah, that is exactly what I would expect from Garrick and Bashir, and I thought that the well, the introduction of the uh, Bajoran woman Levine was well done. Like you don't suspect anything's going on at that point, right? Uh, to, to be clear, you don't even know if she's the owner of the restaurant, if she's a waitress, or what's going on. But everything seemed quite normal. And then that explosion, it really caught me off guard. And I thought it really set the story into motion very well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, and, you know, as 
the the explosion happens, you know, again, Bashir and, and Garrick are, are able, you know, to to survive. And we find out as Odo is questioning the owner, who is this uh, Bajoran named Levin, um, she believes that this is Quark. Um, and, and she believes that mm-hmm. it's Quark who, um, you know, he's always wanted her out of business because she's, you know, her, her and her restaurant are a rival for him and in, in his bar. Um, and she mm-hmm. blames him. And so I, I thought that was, I mean, it's an interesting start to the story. To, um, in, and, it, yeah. you know, it, it, it was like, oh, wow, already blaming Quark. Man, not a good day for Quark. <laughs> but w- what did you think about that, though? Because obviously... As a viewer, you don't think Quark's going to bomb someone's restaurant. In, in general, Quark's not going to bomb someone, and certainly not just to get rid of another restaurant on the promenade. So what did you think about her accusation, and, and what did that make you think in terms of where the story is headed? Yeah, I, I so I did discount it, but I think one of the things that this comic does is it does keep you guessing throughout the series uh, and and as you go from issue to issue, and they do actually bring up reasons for you to believe that it possibly could be Quark as we move through the series, which I you know is I think that's really interesting uh, to me, um, and I think that's really smart um, for them to not just immediately discount it. Right. Um, and of course, it's mm-hmm. Odo. So, you know, although this doesn't seem like something that Quark would do, it there you he can't discount anything here, especially at the beginning of a of an investigation. And, and in the investigation, we also find out, too, which is I mean, this is horrendous, but that there are these specific darts that have been used inside the bomb to create shrapnel that will basically kill and and create the maximum amount of damage and the maximum amount of death as possible. Uh, and so in in many ways, you know, and, and Cisco even says this in, in one of the meetings he has is, look, we're at war. This is uh, a very big problem. And this could be a political powder keg um, if we don't keep this under control. Uh, because obviously it, it involves... The station, uh, it involves the Ferengi, uh, it involves Bajorans, and there are Nausicans who died in there. I mean, there are all of these different people who died inside the restaurant, and this could be a real, this could be the worst timing for something like this to happen if, mm-hmm. if we can't figure this out more quickly than not. Did you ever think that the attack might have come from the outside and it might have been? The Dominion, for example, trying to to separate these powers, like create conflict mm-hmm. within the powers. I I did have that in my mind, um, and there are there are a couple moments throughout the issues, honestly, where they maybe allude to the fact, and then there are a couple places then where they actually. Um, where I thought, oh, maybe it's going to go that way, and then they kind of immediately shut that down. So. I would say, even though I thought that that might be something they could do, I'm actually really impressed that that's not what they did, um, mm. because that I think would have been slightly too easy. Because it, you know, and and we've seen that happen before, Deep Space Nine. So this goes mm-hmm. 
a, a way in which we've seen some of this this story before, but the way they set it up and the way they structured it, you're kind of expecting one thing and it turns out to be something completely different. And I liked the surprise of what they do. I, I think um, the fact that they don't go that way was really smart uh, in their point because I, I think we would have been like, oh, I've, this feels too familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I, for me, I, I never really thought that it might be an external force, you know, like the Dominion involved in the war. I think, when I think about DS9 and things like this that happened on the station, I tend to come back to the Bajoran situation and the occupation and like old grudges or old conflicts that happened on Terok Nur or that happened on Bajor during the occupation. And the station being the setting for some kind of retaliation, just based on stories that we've had in the series. I tend to think that way at first. Now, I did not see the twist coming at the end. That I thought they did a nice job of concealing that. Uh, I, I was probably more suspicious of Garrick's potential involvement than I was Quark's or an external Dominion force of some kind. Well, and I mean, and then kind of as this issue does wrap up, we what we see here is that there are, you know, these Nausicans have died. And these Nausicans come in, and they're actually apparently the brothers of uh, the people who died, and um, they're suspicious, they say, of Quark. And so we, we've we added a lot of different layers of people who could possibly be involved, or you might think that are involved. Uh, and then, you know, we end the issue with the fact that the darts that were found in the, the shrapnel used in the bomb are actually also in cargo shipments that are quarks. And so this leads us to point, you know, as we end issue one and and get into issue two, that there's a possibility that this really could be quark. Or that he's involved in helping in some way. Exactly, that he's involved somehow. Although knowing quark, he could be unwittingly importing the materials that someone else is using. Exactly. And I would say... For myself personally, that is what I've, you know, my, my brain went to that as, is the most logical mm-hmm. is that Quark, this happened to Quark and somebody's done it to him and it's not something he's done for himself, like that he's been trying to do. Right. Or maybe not even that someone has done this to him, but simply someone has gotten him to import these and he has no idea why. Right. And he might not even realize what they are. You you never know what could have been put on a manifest, for example, because he's always importing all kinds of stuff to the station. Well, and and it, they do make the point too that these are uh, things that are actually illegal in the Federation. Mm-hmm. You know, so right. this is this is. I mean, Quark would have to be doing something um, that is very underhanded, um, even for him. We, but we we again we leave uh, the the first issue with this question, and the second issue we start off immediately, and we find out that Quark had had dealings, and I put that in quotations, dealings, underhanded dealings with these Nausigans, and they might have felt um, you know gypped. 
by him. And and so we realize that they could have hard feelings against Quark, so it helps with the motivation for somebody to possibly be setting Quark up in this. Yeah. Um, So I I love the way, again, we we just kind of keep adding layers to... um, we just keep adding layers to what's what's happening here. Although I will say one twist here. One thing that made me a little bit uncertain is that on the first page of the second issue, in thinking whether Cork may be involved or not, I was a little bit confused because I wasn't sure who this Ferengi is who's being interrogated by Worf and Odo because it doesn't look anything like Quark. <laughs> so I don't know who that character might be. I'm just kidding. Little jab there at the uh, at the art style. But um, let me ask you a question. Now, this this is something I, I was trying to figure out. Where does this story fall on the timeline? Because when Worf first came to the station, there was, of course, some friction between him and Odo in terms of security because Worf had been in charge of security on the Enterprise. Now he's on a space station where there's a lot more stuff going on that would make you uneasy as a security officer. And yet you're no longer in a position to be involved in providing security and you don't like the approach of the person who is. So there was some friction, but that started to fade away, you know, as the series went on. And, but we get that here. And it caught me a bit off guard, and I was wondering, why are we getting that at this point in the story? So if we look at the star date in the first investigator's notes that Odo took going back to the first issue, the star date is established. It's 51636.5. Now, in terms of where that falls on the timeline, that would be kind of like late season six interesting on the tv show it would be it well it's between like a one little ship honor among thieves and it's before in the pale moonlight which is of course the big Mm. twist with getting right the romulans involved in the war so i feel like at that point Worf is already doing his own thing and this little twist to the story, or not twist, this little aspect of the story, that felt a little bit out of place to me. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, I I didn't expect to see this because obviously we don't see Worf being like this after season four. So mm-hmm. um, I, 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 didn't, uh, I didn't get necessarily why we were having Worf have uh, such a problem with Odo at this point in his his style. Yeah, unless it's the the classic TNG movie thing where we need Worf to show up and do something. <laughs> so why don't we have him help with the investigation? <laughs> well, and and it, what's interesting is that you know, like you said, kind of quickly that fades, and then they start working together, and then they kind of play yeah. good cop, bad cop in a, in a minute, which is really interesting because. One of the big things that happens here in issue two is that somebody else ends up dead, and it is the Bajoran health minister who's found dead uh, in a part of the station that does not have any cameras or anything for people to be able to see. Uh, And his last known place to visit before he shows up dead was Garrick's shop. Uh, And so, you know, this is where, like you said 
earlier, you know, Garrett kind of comes into speculation as maybe somebody who would be a part of this, even though, I mean, he was at the restaurant that was attacked and he could have been killed himself. So we are throwing light on so many different people who could maybe be involved or possibly involved or had something to do with it or, you know, be the culprit in the first place. Uh, and this just adds one more place for that. So I, I thought that that was, was really interesting. And, and then, you know, right after that, this is where Worf has an idea to basically do some aggressive detecting, <laughs> like, <laughs> which I thought was great. It's a great name for a band also. It's it's it's, a, it's related to aggressive negotiations. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's going to be your new show. Yeah. Yeah, aggressive detecting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a mystery podcast. <laughs> yes, uh, for those who uh, don't know, Matthew has a Star Wars podcast with John Mills called Aggressive Negotiations. <laughs> so what did you think of that though because I mean they basically break up an illegal card game uh, and play good cop, <laughs> bad cop, uh, and find out that, uh, you know, this leads to the Nausicans actually being the ones who had, you know, brought on this material, not Quark. So, I mean, that's, it, it works. I mean, Worf had a great idea here. <laughs> He didn't yeah. get told no. <laughs> well, oh, right. Hey, that's true. Wow. Worf did not get told no. I just realized that. Very good point. I I will say that it fits well with Deep Space Nine. It's probably the only Star Trek series where you could walk in and break up an illegal card game as part of a story plot. I, yeah, I, I thought them working together was good. And of course, later on, we get another investigator. So we get kind of like three approaches in the story to trying to uncover what's going on in a murder case. The card game itself was interesting that if I'm not mistaken, one of the aliens here is supposed to be a Beetlejuicean, I believe. Probably. Which is, yeah. Yeah. you know, a character that we saw in the motion picture. And then we didn't see again for a long time, but, but which resurfaced in season three of Star Trek Discovery. And now you see these aliens popping up. Uh, Discovery's bringing back a lot of old aliens, and now they're starting to appear in comics and places where we didn't see them before. Well, it was great, too, because in the scene we have, um, uh, the conference scene with Starfleet officers, we see an Andorian, we see a Tellarite uh, arguing about Vulcans, you know, which was really fun. Yeah. So it, it felt like... it, it, it and. Before we saw Endorians in Enterprise, you know, the beauty of of Deep Space Nine is I think they were the show who maybe mentioned Andorians the most, but we never actually saw yeah. them. So Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and we you know, we've even got a bird on the very first page of the entire comic in the background. It's true. So yeah. That, that's true. Um the the Garrick thing also I found interesting because when he's talking to Odo and Worf, he reminds them that this station has more tales to tell than even you know, and and even longer memory, which of course is a statement that does turn out to be key to the entire story. And that worked for me with Garrick because he obviously knows things that happen on the station and individuals and dynamics between people, 
that maybe Odo knows some, but not as much as Garrick and Worf would have no idea about. Yeah. And there's there's another point, I, I forget where it is in the story, but they're talking about, well, Garrick was at the restaurant, and he could have been killed, so it can't possibly have been him. And Odo said, well, you know, he did blow up his own shop one time. So you never know with Garrick what he might do. Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. And, you know, one of the things that we see here is that, um, and we have a visit here with uh, some Vedics, and we find out that the minister who died, Kidan, was a well-connected Bajoran and a collaborator to which the provisional government had allowed to stay basically alive and in business because they needed his trade networks. Um, and and so they they allowed him to basically stay in business because of that. And we also find out that the a Ferengi trade delega- delegation is here on the station uh, to help the Federation with the problem that they're having right now. And like you mentioned, this is before the Romulans come into the war. And Hmm. The, the they're having a problem with munitions they need 500 the vulcans say they need 500 quantum torpedoes for this upcoming battle and it turns out that they they don't even have 50 you know so we see well, Matthew, here i think 300 would be plenty but that's just me <laughs> yeah yeah um but i i think to me that makes this really fascinating because we're really deepening the story here and we're spending a lot of time um uh, with the what's going on here in a way that is really uh, just it's so deep space nine to kind of layer in all of these uh, things that are happening all at one time. And, that, you know, obviously the beauty of deep space nine is that we were worried about more than just one ship. Like this is the entire galaxy that we're worried about. And, you know, um, therefore, all of these elements converging and happening at the same time makes so much uh, sense for this really busy, bustling station that's a trade commerce, you know, you, you, a, a, a place where the war is at, at, at the head, you know. And uh, so I really appreciate that about this. Um, and this just doesn't help anything because, uh, you know, now we put the yeah. Federation in a really terrible predicament because – they're they have problems with the Ferengis now. <laughs> they have problems with the Nosigans. They have problems with uh, because there was a Benzonite that died. Um, they have problems with the Bajorans because it blew up. Uh, you know, one of their uh, citizens' uh, businesses was blown up. So, like, it couldn't be going any worse. Like, this is Cisco's awful, rotten, not very good, terrible no good day. <laughs> right. <laughs> Actually, so that's a really interesting point that you made about the quantum torpedoes and not being able to procure those. And what I said earlier about where this falls on the timeline in terms of the star date, we are just right before in the pale moonlight. So if we want to think about this is a store, this is something that happened on the station during the series but we didn't get to see it. Like this episode mm-hmm. didn't happen for us because they had to do Time's Orphan. They had to get that ready at the end of season six. And so they didn't have time to make this one. So yeah, we didn't get yeah, to see that, it. Yeah, that was a really but, important one. You know, <laughs> glad you got that one in guys. 
Right, right. But but this happened, and it happened just before in the pale moonlight. So if you look at the situation that the Federation has been put in where they really need help from somewhere, so that might really push Cisco to make that decision that he's going to try to get the Romulans to come into the war. And then also you look at Garrick's involvement in this story, and then Garrick's involvement in helping Cisco bring the Romulans into the war. It really does fit nicely mm-hmm. within that narrative as events that had a strong influence on what we did see, only there were events that we didn't know about until now. Yes. Well, and yeah, they it's really interesting because they, they bring in, they're going to bring in uh, a new security officer, but this security officer is not a part of Starfleet. This is going to be a civilian Federation security officer that also happens to be a Betazoid. So that should be a very interesting challenge. Uh, and, of course, this is another place where Odo is, is not necessarily be put a, put, being put aside, but as the all the issues that we just mentioned that are going on, all of the different uh, connections, all of the different races that are all kind of combining here to be angry basically at the federation because of what's happening on the station they're bringing in somebody else to help them with the investigation to hopefully get this wrapped up as quickly as possible um and so that's where we leave uh, issue two and get into issue three now it's interesting with this security officer that he yeah turns out to be a betazoid and again, it's a case of fitting this story into what's happening with the Dominion War, because we do have that mention that comes up that Beta Z has been uh, occupied by the Dominion. But it's not really a plot point of the war that we explore on the series. Mm-hmm. And yet the the impact of that occupation on the Betazoid people is it's key to the outcome of this story i guess is how i would put it yeah and i mean it it's weighing heavily on you know what uh rutlaw is thinking about he's this idea of there being an occupation on on beta z you know um and luckily his wife and his daughter are safe but he knows that there are so many that are not so that does create a nice uh connection with the story and of course you know we have the the book that has been covered here on Literary Trek's Battle of Beta Z, um, which is which is uh, tells that that story for us, mm-hmm. and so, um, and and in two, you know, we see here that um, it it makes him uncomfortable that he can't read Odo, you know, and he mm-hmm. also, you know, he has kind of a preconception about who Odo is based on what he knows of the founders, and even though he's not necessarily blaming Odo and he even says that I'm not blaming you. I'm not taking this out on you, but it is, it does make him uneasy and he admits that to Odo. And I think that creates a really nice kind of a character arc we get here in, in the storyline as we move forward. But really, I mean, uh, this, this issue is, is, is a very interesting issue because, um, I, I would say there's a lot of exposition that happens, but not necessarily all super important to the storyline. Um, 
But I want to ask you this. One thing we do find out is that, you know, obviously the Federation has very strict rules about how investigations can be conducted, Mm -hmm. especially when it Mm -hmm. comes to uh, investigators who are telepaths. And it was interesting to find out that the Federation can authorize the use of telepathy if they deem it necessary uh, enough for the security of, you know, the Federation. And that's exactly what actually what's happened here. Retlaw has been given that um, permission to use all of his powers to mm-hmm. uh, bring to justice whoever's responsible for this. That was really fascinating to me and also made quite a bit of sense. So, Yeah, it's an interesting point. And it did stand out to me when Odo, you know, brought up the point that these types of techniques, you know, what what is the legality of it? Uh, is it appropriate in an investigation to do this? And then we find out, well, you know, here's an exception that could be made. It's it's a little bit of commentary that I feel like gets it from the start of the third issue on to the end. I feel like we get a fair bit of social commentary, you know, talking about the world today and maybe over the past decade or two. This particular bit, I can see it playing in a bit into questions of, you know, what kind of techniques can be used to get information from people if you deem it important enough on a national security level, or in this case, a federation security level. And then there's also the question of, if you think about using telepathy, being able to have access to the internal intimate thoughts of a person without their permission, but also without compelling them to give you that information. It's sort of akin to the debate these days over smartphones, for example, especially now that we have biometrics where you could just put your finger or you could just look at the phone, right? And it would unlock, you know, can an investigator gain access to your thoughts, which are stored not in your head necessarily, but in a device by just forcing you it's not i guess forcing is the right word but i just think of like simply putting your finger on something or simply looking at a face sensor would give them very easy access in the way that an empath or a telepath would be able to just read those thoughts from your mind so i think it's kind of an interesting it's only barely touched on here it's not the way you would do it in a science fiction novel that was focused on the subject but it's that uh, scratching the surface of that kind of commentary and debate, which is appropriate in this story because you're dealing mm-hmm. with Odo as an investigator. Yeah. And we all know that Odo himself, he's a by-the-book person, but he also, I think, is willing to use techniques that maybe the Federation normally wouldn't be willing to use. No, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, and what makes this interesting here is that <laughs> as they're having their conversation together, Two more Ferengis have shown up dead. Um, And so, honestly, things just keep getting worse for them. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit of a, felt like a little bit of a TOS twist there because they were killed by someone blowing darts at them. Mm -hmm. Feels like something that would happen in an original series episode. Some red shirts beam down to the planet, darts fly out from behind rocks, and they're gone. Well, what's great about this, though, is that, you know, the... 
the security officer, he asks Odo, you know, uh, are there any cameras where we could see this? And of course there aren't because this is a, uh, this is a Cardassian station and there were not a lot of cameras installed in, in different areas. Right. And so this is where they come to the idea that it, there's a good possibility then that this is an inside job, that somebody inside is helping whoever's doing this that would allow them to, you know, not uh, be caught, to be able to know where these things mm-hmm. are a possibility. So that's a, a fascinating thing that they kind of come to as an idea. Yeah. So obviously we're going to get to the inside job part in a moment because it's key to the rest of the story. I, I did want to ask you, though, this idea that there aren't many cameras around for security because it's a Cardassian station, that struck me as pretty odd because they've already refitted this Cardassian station with this weapons system that obviously the station wasn't built with so they can defend the station. They've refitted so many aspects of the station. Would it be so hard to put some security cameras in the hallways? And don't you think Odo would want to do that? I mean, it is a good question, although the you have to remember, too, and, and maybe this would be something you could get into. It's a Bajoran station, and maybe Bajorans don't like CTTV cameras everywhere. <laughs> well, that's a good point. Yeah, maybe. that That's possible. So, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of that, you know, would... Yeah. would... It, it just felt, like, very convenient for the plot. Sure. That sure. there would, you know, that in the 24th century during a time of war, that there there wouldn't be any mm-hmm. cameras. Whereas, you know, I I don't know what it's like in the United States these days and in, in large cities, but you know, here in in Tokyo we have cameras around. If you go to a city like London, there are cameras all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. In public, and it just seemed kind of odd to me that the station wouldn't have that. And I could easily see a different story where you needed to have cameras and we would find out that there are cameras lining the corridors. Now, see, it doesn't really, I mean, it, it does make sense to me in the way that this station was built. I mean, it's really, I mean, it was meant to be an ore processing station. Yeah. In you that know, case, it wasn't sure. meant yeah. to be a place where uh, people lived other than Cardassians really being in those, those areas. And I don't think they thought that there would be, you right. know, so that makes sense in that sense. Um, that does. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I think, you know, the question of why was that never added later and, and maybe that has something to do with Cardassian construction as well. You know, I mean, we know they use deuterium uh, and that may be not the easiest thing to just install these type of systems everywhere, uh, even though we'll find out later that somebody has installed but anyway but it is a good question um so i'm just i'm picturing a show on space hgtv you know like diy security cameras and they're trying to do it and they're like first thing you've got to do is find your way past the deuterium walls (laughs) it's like space fixer upper (laughs) yeah Uh, welcome to Deep Space shots. Nine Fixer Upper. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Well, I I think it's interesting because um we we get Retlaw wanting to question the different suspects and people involved, and and we go through some of that, and really where this leads us to is um somebody that he needs to talk to, which is the Nausicaan that Odo has in custody, and. Odo um, obviously didn't get much out of him, but Retlaw is able to. 
Um, and doing that, they find out that there's an Ensign Coleman Schroeder mm-hmm. who they need to talk to. Um, and so they arrange a meeting with this Ensign Schroeder, and it is very interesting because in this meeting, Retlaw is having a very hard time reading him at all. Now, of course, there's going to be some Ensign who's the inside man, you know, that seems to happen uh, from time to time in Star Trek stories. So that that revelation didn't surprise me very much. And in fact, I probably should have thought about it earlier on. The bit here about him being able to block Retlaw from reading his mind, they never come back to that, do they? They never nope. explain how he's doing that. And that's something I was a bit disappointed uh, in. I wanted... I wanted some explanation of what was going on. You know, was it some kind of, uh, you know, was he injected with something that creates some kind of of block? Uh, mm-hmm. Or is there something else going on? You know, does he have a device on him that's somehow blocking him? Right. Uh, are the Ferengi involved? Because do the Ferengi find a way that what prevents Betazoids from reading the thoughts of Ferengi, mm-hmm. which if I remember has to do with the lobe yeah. structure of their head, yep. I believe, right? Did they find some way to kind of emulate that to to give that protection to someone else? Who, I, I think it'd be interesting to know what that is, but we never come back to it. Yeah, I think what's also really interesting here, and like you said, they never come back to it, but this is one of the places where you could have jumped to the conclusion that, oh, it's this, this is a changeling, and, and they... They make uh-huh. it very specific that he can sense him being there, his presence, but he can't sense the, his thoughts the way he should be able to. So they differentiate mm-hmm. between his feelings on, and, and not being able to sense Odo at all. Odo basically being basically right. – uh, Odo basically is like a, a blank spot to him. There's nothing there. Right. Um, whereas this person, it's there, but he just can't get deeper inside the way he would be able to with normal people. Yeah, so they've discounted the possibility that he is a changeling, right? Right there. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which was so, so nice. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's that possibility is gone at that point. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting though that you know they go back to Garrick's shop to ask him if if he had seen Engine Schroeder at all or overheard anything because you know Garrick is very good at that, and this is where Garrick has himself in his shop installed some security cameras. And mm-hmm. he because the walls around his shop are not made of deuterium. Apparently, yes. <laughs> so um, he did a little bit of uh, you know Garrick Garrick fixer upper uh, himself, yeah. and um, yeah. So uh, he has a video where this engine Schroeder is actually having a meeting with the Vedic, and that leads us to believe, of course, that the Vedic had something to do with this. And as um, you know. They're talking about it with Cisco. Kira is very much opposed to them, questioning him and treating him like a criminal. And so Cisco just encourages them to do it discreetly. And this is a moment where we have two darts as Odo and in the the uh, uh, as Odo and Retlaw are walking on the abandoned. You know, it's very late at night at this point on the station. Mm, yeah. um, they are almost, almost assassinated, which right. is, you know, they realize, okay, well, this means we must be getting close. But of course, they assume that it's connected to the Vedic. 
that mm-hmm. like somehow right. they're approaching his quarters yes. and therefore they're being attacked. Yes. Um, it's also interesting that, well, first of all, uh, the Vedic should know by now, if he's been around for so long, don't have meetings in Garrick's shop. No. Wouldn't you know that? <laughs> That's a really bad idea. And the, oh, the thing about Kira, this is another thing that, I mean, it's a great parallel to how the real world works, right? That she has this blind spot when it comes to mm-hmm. the Bajoran religion and governmental structure and like the culture that she, and maybe I'm reading more into this. Do you feel her only concern is upsetting the Bajoran government and how that might affect the status of the station? Or do you feel that it is that she can't believe that a Vedic could be involved in this and somehow you shouldn't bother a Vedic with these types of things. Because I think in the real world, you know, that is often an obstacle to finding out the truth that someone in a certain position, and it doesn't have to be a religious thing, but it's just someone in a certain position you feel shouldn't be disturbed and should be untouchable. And therefore, you don't go down paths that are necessary in order to find the truth or resolve the situation. I didn't quite feel it that way. Um, I felt like she trusted this Vedic, uh, and therefore that's the reason um, she she thought highly of him. You know, it, it, I think Kira has too much experience with people in power in the Bajoran religion who are not like this. Um, you mm-hmm. know, obviously mm-hmm. Kai Win, numero uno in that that discussion. So. I do think this doesn't have anything to necessarily do with that. Um, but I think it is an interesting point, you know, the idea about, you know, having blind spots. Uh, and, you know, we confront this Vedic uh, and um, that's where this issue ends and the last mm-hmm. issue begins. And well, what what was interesting right there, though, is that at this point in the story, I'm really feeling like this Vedic very likely has something to do with it. Yes. Because we've seen that kind of story, right? And that's why I felt like Kira's blind spot might stall the investigation at a yep. critical moment. But then the abrupt nature in which we find out that this is a dead end, that was also a little bit surprising. You know, you go in, you think that they're going to get some information, and then suddenly it's like, no, it wasn't him. Yeah, just like slam the door on it, right? Yeah, um, I I I thought that um, this was really well done in that sense, though, because he he reads his mind and it's not him, um, and so. But what we find out, and this is one of the places again, the, the art does this in a couple places, but he um, this Vedic kind of goes a little bit crazy in the art where he's talking about mm-hmm. living under the thumb of the Cardassians and he just looks insane and it just feels like it's over the top for for what's going on. But what we find is yeah. that this Vedic was also involved in much the same way that uh, the health minister was as being a collaborator. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're, we're finding... Like you said, the the station here has a long memory, 
uh, and 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 wars like that and occupations like that have have long consequences. And it it was a really it was a good continuation of the thematic elements here. And it and I thought it was mm-hmm. interesting too because something that he says, which is he said you were here, it makes Odo think. And he goes back uh, to the restaurant. And this is where we get everything unraveled. Um, and mm-hmm. we find out who the killer is. And honestly, I don't know about you, but I, I didn't really see this one coming. No, this was a surprise. The, the reason behind her doing it made sense. But... I didn't see that twist coming. Maybe when we finally got back to the restaurant, I at that point I started thinking a little bit like, oh, maybe, you know, but it wasn't like I think this is the killer. Yeah. Well, and 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 what we find out is that Lavin's brother was the casualty of Kidan and the Vedic making deals with the Cardassians. And he ends up killed because of that. And so she seduced the ensign to help her because she needed somebody inside uh, to help her pull this off. And this is where we mm-hmm. kind of see that that idea of too long a sacrifice. Even if she had to sacrifice her uh, entire uh, restaurant, even if she had to sacrifice her life, uh, she was going to kill this person who was responsible for the death of her brother. And I really, I, I just thought that this was so interesting because to me, it really came off of of this idea of when we completely become consumed by the past and we cannot find a way to let things go. That we cannot yeah. find a way that that we get lost in the idea of revenge, you know, and and obviously as we know, revenge is a dish best served cold, and it doesn't taste good. Like she doesn't actually by the by the end of this, she spent so many years looking for for revenge that once she gets it, she's completely broken mentally. Like she's just mm-hmm. wasted. Uh, they, mm-hmm. She has nothing left. Because she spent so many years looking towards this. And I really appreciated this idea and, and seeing this idea of that if you spend so much time consumed with what happened in the past and you can never find a way to make your peace with it somehow, um, that it will eat you alive. Yeah, absolutely. And in addition to that, you know, being obsessed with something that happened in the past, not being able to let it go, letting it take over uh, your thoughts, how you approach things. It also is true of not necessarily events or wrongs that happen to you, but ideas that you can't let go of. Like you get caught up in something. That's what I see as also appropriate. When I said earlier, there are some bits of social commentary that get into the story towards the end. I mean, that's one that you just described. And related to that, when we look at a lot of discourse today, people, and sometimes it's based on past events, but it could be very recent history, and it could be in the here and now, people latch on to 
a hatred or a, or they dismiss a group or they want to get revenge or they want to shut out a group in some way and it just completely controls everything they do and it and like all reason goes out the window and it spirals out of control and that's what we see just in social discourse today with uh, two sides two extreme sides pushing back on each other and that also came to mind for me as i was reading the end of the story in addition to the the obvious situation of how she was personally affected by a horrific act of her brother being killed mhm no i i heartily agree and i think the other thing that was really interesting here was seeing how um you know we have this connection with um odo and retlaw and 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 how you know his preconceptions about who Odo would be is based mm-hmm. off of his preconceptions about what the founders are uh, as people, yeah, and yeah. that they're all and that, monolith. And I think the beauty of that right. was that this really shows that we have to be open-minded to people, regardless of where they come from, and that we should let their actions determine how we judge mm-hmm. them, because that's the only way to to make any determination about a person. So we can't make a determination about a person by their skin color or where they're from or who their parents were or any of these type of things. We must make a determination by the the conduct of people's character, you know, and their actions because that's the only true testament of who a person is. And that's what he, he learns here. And him and Odo are able to part as friends because of this. They, they mm-hmm. part as colleagues, you know, and, and people who respect one another. I really appreciated that because I could not think of a more timely, important yeah. uh, theme to be portrayed here. And this, I think, is where, you know, when it comes down to the comic uh, here, Chris, I believe that this encapsulates beautifully the type of storytelling that we got on Deep Space Nine over and over yeah. and over again. Um, and so I'm really wondering, like, what would you rate this, do you think? Mm. Well, uh, before I get to my rating of it, just the thing that you said there and Retlaw's acceptance of Odo in particular because he had prejudged him, that ties into what I was just saying. And it's one of the things that made me really think about it is that, uh, you know, especially in social media these days, People, they just judge everybody on the absolute most superficial uh, factors. And they don't know the people. And sometimes they kind of know the person, but they still judge them anyway on extremely superficial uh, factors. And it's a, a huge problem in society and if, if we want to improve. And I like the way that this comic ends where, yeah, I mean, this is a man whose planet has been occupied by the people to whom Odo belongs yep. as a race, the founders, and yet they're able to overcome that and and see good in each other and respect each other. So I think that's a really important point. As far as my rating, uh, story-wise, I actually gave uh, this story five deuterium columns out of five, you know, wall supports. Uh, overall for the comic, I rated it four and the reason is just because the art style to me, it doesn't work for me very well uh, for the most part. But the story I thought was excellent and felt like it would be 100% at home as an episode of the TV series. I 100% agree with you. 
I mean, I'm right there with you. I think you're absolutely right in your ratings there. The story, I think, is is absolutely what you'd come to expect from anything Deep Space Nine. And I think the only thing that is a little bit disappointing here uh, is just the art. It doesn't seem to support the story Mm -hmm. in the way that I would have personally wanted. Um, And so, um, but I absolutely enjoyed this. And, and, you know, I, I would think, I think, you know, it comes to Star Trek storytelling. I, I want more stories like this. This is great, you know? And so, uh, and I know we have the book that's going to be coming up. That's taking place in the sixth season of Deep Space Nine, the the new book that's been coming out this year. This shows how you could still tell really moving stories inside the series of a show. Um, and like you, you mentioned earlier, this fits so well with the surrounding stories of Deep Space Nine. So very impressed, very impressed. Highly mm. recommend Too Long a Sacrifice. It is absolutely worth your time. So uh, I would say pick it up, you know, digitally or in trade paperback. It's out like that now. So this is totally worth it. Yeah. And you may love the art style. I mean, it's very subjective. It's true. Yeah, and absolutely. He- and, you know, my background is uh, originally I'm a designer, so I understand the creative process very well. So they had the reasons for going with this style and it might work well for you. It just for us, it was not quite what uh, yeah. we would want to see. Yeah. yeah. Well, Matthew, that was really fun. And as always, I enjoy talking about these stories with you because one thing that's become clear over the years is that we uh, help each other find different things in stories. I'm reading through, I'm thinking about the points I might want to discuss, but once we start talking, all kinds of other things come up. Uh, In particular, when you mentioned how not being able to get the quantum torpedoes could have actually pushed Cisco towards the events of In the Pale Moonlight. That's something I hadn't thought about while I was reading. Yeah, I mean, I think um, it is just so much fun. And part of that has to do with, and we we mentioned this as we're talking about our ratings, but I think it it bears repeating. Uh, is that when you have a good story, you can have these type of in-depth conversations. And the best Star Trek stories and the best stories in general lead you to be able to have very deep, in-depth conversations. But also, if you're going to tell a story like this, this one connects so well with the surrounding material that it's supposed to be supporting. You know, they've absolutely done their homework. You know, they've absolutely done what they need to make sure this story fits in continuity. So well done, you know, absolutely well done to Scott Tipson here uh, with his storytelling. And so I I would, you know, love to see more stories like this in the comics. So I'm really excited to see what we'll have next. But um, Chris, you know, uh, if people wanted to maybe catch up with you uh, and see what you've got going on these days, where can they find you? Well, the best place to find me is on Twitter. That's my preferred platform, and that's where I'm most active. My username on there is C Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. You can also find me in the Babel Conference. Uh, my username is social media, C Brian Jones everywhere. So if you want to catch up with me on Instagram or places like that, you can find me there. Here on the network, uh, of course, we have an orb coming up, and we're going to be doing some more episodes of the orb where Matthew and I discuss Deep Space Nine. Larry Nemechek and I will have a new ready room coming up soon, as soon as we can work out the schedule to record that. And also shows like Interphase, uh, The Edge, we're going to have those going again. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, I'll be doing a patron's roundtable 
tomorrow, and we'll be doing one every other week moving forward to get our patrons more involved. And while we're talking about that, Matthew, let's just go ahead and share with everyone. If you want to help us keep the shows going, that's really very, very important these days. We're uh, struggling a little bit as we retool things and come through the pandemic, which is impacting everyone. But if you go to patreon.com slash trekfm, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash trekfm, you can find out how to support us there. And one of those perks is the Patrons Roundtable. And what that is, is just get on mic with me and fellow listeners, and we'll pick a topic and we'll just talk about Star Trek. It's very casual, but it's in the style of our podcasts. And then we put that out there for everyone to listen to. And of course, we have other perks as well and some new things that I'll be rolling out soon. So that's Patreon if you'd like support, to support us there. And uh, but, but yeah, if you want to chat with me as I watch Star Trek and talk about other things, Twitter is the best place for that. And Matthew, when you're not trying to figure out how to install cameras all around your house so you can be sure no one's shooting darts when you're not looking... Where can people find you? Well, of course, uh, here on the network, you can find me doing the 602 Club, uh, which is our whole other side of the network as we're talking about all of the fandoms we love, uh, which is so exciting. Uh, And of course, coming out very, very, very soon, before you know it, we're going to have Snyder Cuts, which is a short-run podcast where uh, John Mills and I are talking about the directorial works of Zack Snyder as we're looking towards his Justice League that is coming out here in March, which is very exciting. So we hope you'll enjoy that. Um, You can also find me over on the Nerd Party Network doing a couple of shows. One's called Owl Post with Drea Kaufman. We're talking through the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. Honestly, Chris, we're almost done with that podcast. Um, we only have. I know it's amazing. <laughs> I know it's been like it's such four a long years, story. So yeah, yeah. How many so, years? I think almost four years now. So okay, it's been a lot of fun, um, and we're super excited to to bring it to a close. Uh, and then, of course, John Mills and I are also doing a show over there called Aggressive Negotiations. It's a Star Wars podcast, and we get together and talk about Star Wars each and every week. So. Um, hope you'll check that out. And on social media, you can find me under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two. Uh, Chris, we do want to say though before we go, a huge thank you to our uh, associate producers through Patreon who make sure that Literary Treks and the network keep coming to you each and every week. And so, thank you so much, Craig Rosier, as well as Casey Petit for your support of the network. We really appreciate that. It means a lot to Chris and I that you've continued for so many years. Uh, and again, Absolutely. you know, that's one of the perks that you can get by joining us uh, through Patreon. So again, go over there to patreon.com slash track FM and become part of the team. And also, Matthew, I think I'm losing track of what we've told people here at the closing, but I think we haven't told people yet that if you want to share your thoughts on too long a sacrifice... There are several ways you can do that. One is on Facebook in the Babel Conference, which is our listeners group. You can talk to us there. Join if you're not yet a member. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field, and it should come up. If not, just type the Babel Conference. It is a closed group, so if you're not yet a member, there are three questions. Actually, two questions, plus agreeing to the terms of the group, and you need to do all three of those things so that I can let you in. But that is a great place to have a discussion. And of course, there's Twitter, uh, TrekFilm is our username there. And also, you can just send us an email. Go to trek.fm slash contact and use the form there to contact us. And then that'll come to Matthew and me. So there are many ways you can share your thoughts on the story. And of course, we'd love to hear what you think about too long a sacrifice. All right, Matthew. Well, you know, 
thankfully, Cisco rebuilt Lavin's restaurant. So I think I'm going to head over there. And even though she's not there anymore, I'm really curious, you know, what the new chef's cooking up. Well, Chris, be careful. Uh, you never know when you might find a poisonous dart in your sandwich. So, uh, but thank you so much. Matthew, they're not hot pockets, so don't worry. <laughs> well on that note thank you so much for joining us and until next time live long and read on you call that light reading to each his own number one